Welcome to the Establish the Edge podcast. I'm your host, Mike Leone. Last week, we had a really good episode with Jack Miller talking about the RB dead zone and RB upside. This week, we're going to get a little bit more theoretical. I'm bringing in Eric Beimfor of Roto Grinders, one of the better contrarian DFS players out there. And I've seen Eric tweet a lot about the underdog best ball mania tournament. Some of it has me nodding along fervently and excitedly and some of it has me pretty triggered and defensive so that makes eric the perfect guest eric welcome to the show i was definitely gonna say yes when you asked me to to be on this on this episode you know now that pat is gone and i I thought it was just funny because if we look back you know five years five plus years i can't even remember exactly how long it was like the two of us were not always the most cordial to each other, I guess I would say, um, on, on Twitter. We definitely didn't agree a lot. And, you know, I guess I'm a little older and calmer now, and I was probably a bit of a, a dick back then. But, yeah, we didn't Likewise. agree. We didn't agree. Yeah, we didn't agree. We didn't agree a ton. And so now, like, there's been this evolution where I find myself, like, you know, you're having this man versus machine conversation with with Evan, and, like, I agree with you almost almost all the time when, you know, not even that long ago, I was like, oh, Leone, he doesn't know what he's talking about. (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely, I think as you improve in this game in DFS, you kind of like get the marriage of like understanding, you know, the projection side of it and trying to work on the math. Like that's my background, but applying that in different ways, you're not, you know, not just applying it in terms of like, oh, I make good projections. Therefore my projections are right. And I'm going to play them. It's more okay, now that I have projections that are decent, you know, what's the error bar on these? Where can things go wrong? And and how can we actually win money? I know you're very focused on payoffs. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you is converting from a contrarian DFS player to a contrarian season-long player, particularly best ball, I see routes where it's easier because there's even more volatility, right? You know, we talk about, I know one of the things you've talked about, it's kind of like this false allure of volume uh, in season long. And in DFS, we, we sometimes have that a little bit, but like going into the week, it's like kind of set in stone. So that volatility seems to make it easier to be contrarian. But then what makes it tougher is there's less, just the way the game's structured, you don't have these huge ownership disparities, right? Like even if you're trying to have unique teams in the underdog best ball mania tournament at the end of the season, you know, you got to beat your 12 team league first and everyone owns each player one time. So these payoffs seem a little bit tougher to kind of, to figure out that if you're right, if you're wrong from a game theory standpoint, they, they definitely are. And honestly, you know, I don't even know that I'm like even all that great of a best ball player yet, but I think that's the, the allure of this game is that nobody really has it figured out. It's still so, still so new specific to these contests right there's been best ball before and there's been like 12 team leagues and 16 leagues whatever um but like specific to these like huge underdog and DraftKings contests you know million dollars to first 150 plus 150,000 200,000 entries and you can only have 150 i think the rules of that game are what allow you to be like a more kind of not even necessarily contrarian but a more plus ev player by adapting your approach to the specific rules of that game. And so when it relates to those vol- that, that volume kind of uncertainty um, that you talked about in general, right? I'm not never drafting Darren Waller. I'm not never drafting Mike Davis because almost every player 
has some sort of a role on a team that you might draft. I'm sure we'll get into to Mike Davis and Darren Waller, maybe a little bit more <laughs> specific examples because we've already talked about them. But, you know, there are times when they make sense on teams. In general, those are the type of guys I am personally betting against, however, because I think there are, you know, contrarian aspects, you know, talking about, about being contrarian to pivoting away from the guys who have earned their ADP based on projectable volume compared to guys who have earned their ADP based on, you know, I, I always like to think of the cow, the best example maybe is the Cowboys, all the Cowboys players, really, I guess, outside of Zeke, you know, all the Cowboys skill guys are, have earned their ADP, whether it's, they're just good at football, they're in an awesome offense. And like, we can see the upside, but it's, it's really uncertain. Right. And we'll also, I'm sure, get into the 49ers. Everybody sees what could potentially be the 49ers. But like if we knew, you know, how the season was going to play out right now, the ADPs would not be where they are. Right. CD Lamb and Amari Cooper aren't going to catch the same amount of passes. Maybe one of them's way overvalued. Maybe one of them's way undervalued. I really don't know. But I'm trying to bet on that uncertainty around guys who can earn more value than what their than what their ADP is versus if Darren Waller doesn't catch a hundred and something balls again, right. And still score as many touchdowns despite a bad offense, um, the toughest schedule in the league and all these different other variables that are honestly tough to achieve. Um, he's not going to pay. He's not going to pay off and he might not pay off, you know, depending on upon what his peers at the position do his peers at around that ADP, he still might not pay off. So I'm just trying to kind of take a step back and think about um, how to approach different players in terms of how can they, you know, again, to you, to what you said at the beginning, how can they pay me off and pay me off in a, in a, in a big way, given where I'm taking them in drafts? Yeah. Pat and I did an episode talking about, you know, missing on Stefan Diggs and Keenan Allen last year and how, mm-hmm. you know, some of that's just bad luck the way it is. I got on Diggs, you know, thanks to Ben Gretchen part uh, towards the end of the last season, but in terms of like thinking of it in a contrarian sense, it's assuming if there's an assumption to be made and the market is all making the same assumption, kind of taking the other side. So, yep. you know, with Diggs and Allen, the price on those guys, the market was fully assuming, you know, quarterback disaster for Keenan Allen, run heavy offense. And obviously, like his situation was particularly fluky with the early tie rod injury, but his ability to earn targets wasn't like really baked into that. Like if something happened at the quarterback position and for Stefan Diggs, it was, Oh, we don't know if Allen's good. We don't know if this team's going to throw, you know, there's a tough, you know, how much target share is he going to carve out? You know, they're adding a guy and they already have John Brown and Cole Beasley. And, you know, I might not have had a lot of Stefan Diggs if he was going into the third round last year, even if he clearly had the upside to pay that off. But at a sixth round tag, the market was clearly assuming the bear case, you know, with Darren Waller, it's kind of the opposite this year with a second round ish tag, uh, and FFPC drafts, you know, I did a football guys championship with Sam Hoppin and he went like, you know, sixth overall or something, Oof. right. In tight, it's tight end premium, but still, still. um, you know, you, there's no, not much room to grow. He has to do what he mm-hmm. did last year, you know? So uh, sometimes, I, you know, we need we need the price component, I guess, baked in there is what I'm saying uh, because without that, like that, that's how you're going to profit if if the market is fully assumed, whether it's the bear or bull case, the market's fully assuming one way or the other, and that's baked in their ADP. It's kind of like, 
well, they have nowhere to go but up or they have nowhere to go but down. And we kind of want to make sure we have the guys that have room to grow based on their ADP and we avoid some of the guys that can only fall off based on their ADP. Uh, but yeah, without getting too much further into the projectable volume stuff, because we, we might talk about that more in detail. As far as attacking the underdog best ball mania tournament from like a macro approach, I, one of the things you're trying to do is draft a lot of teams early. Uh, and you know, do you want to talk about that or if there's any other mm -hmm. things you think are kind of like giving you a little bit of an edge that people aren't aware of? Yeah, definitely. So I think there's probably two, two big things and I'm not even sure that the drafting early is, is the biggest edge, but the overall draft approach, at least, you know, maybe I'll totally brick this and change my approach next year. But what I believe as of right now is the, the best approach is again, like taking a step back and thinking about what are your, even your edges as a drafter, as it relates to timing of drafts, right? So um, you have a, an edge over your competition, you know, varying levels of an edge over your competition. You have an edge in uncertainty of information. You have an edge in being able to, you know, abstract value in, in ADP. And so weighing all those kind of different levers, I see drafting now, you know, I started a month ago or so somewhere around there. Um, and I want to draft and I'm drafting 150 teams into the best ball mania. And I want to draft half of them now early, you know, basically I, I, ideally I probably would have been done before these camps started because we just really do start to get a flood of information and it, it changes things, but drafting, you know, half of them now before, um, people start to get more information that they have a little more certainty around, around where, you know, who's even playing, right? Who has roles, et cetera, because there's just a natural edge in uncertainty. You know, I, I'm drafting, I, I'm taking not even strong stands, but I'm, you're taking stands on certain guys right now who you believe, you know, are undervalued at their, their ADPs, or they have potential to become even, you know, undervalued at their, at their ADPs. And that's not even like, me projecting anything that's just a nat something a natural flow of happens during an offseason right last year we had no idea that james robinson was going to be you know a thing we had no idea that mike davis frankly i was trying to to draft the mike davis situation but i screwed it up because i was drafting reggie bonifon but i'm trying to just almost luck box my way into those situations mm -hmm. right and and it's it's i'm not even necessarily making bets on any one specific situation but i'm trying to give myself you know 75 shots on goal at building this super team because there's all of this uncertainty i'm willing to sacrifice some of the competition edge because frankly i'm drafting against you and etr subs right and and other sharper players because not that many casuals are drafting in in june so i'm willing to give that up i'm also willing to take on the risk of a guy gets hurt in camp or I draft a guy in the 18th round and he doesn't make the team, you know, like I'm willing, but I'm willing to sacrifice that edge in order to try to build, you know, as many, or at least maybe one just absolute super team. Right. I kind of equate it to, it's not perfect parallel, but in DFS using the, the DFS example, like if you could, if they said we get, let you build 150 teams and you know, if you happen to hit this right combination, we're going to unlock 10 or $20,000 extra in salary. That's kind of what I'm trying to do with like just getting a little bit lucky. And I, I unlock that team that gets $70,000 in salary cap, as opposed to all my teammates are playing with 50. And a lot of them are playing with less than 50, given, you know, the risk of, of drafting early. So I'm trying to, you know, 
get half of my exposure during this time where there's more variance, but there's more upside in building teams and then moving the other half to as kind of as close to the end as I can, right? Monitoring if the tournament's filling or whatever, but it's kind of in during training camp as close to the end as I can, because I just know the competition level is so much worse than like a, Maybe last year isn't all the perfect indicator, but last year, I mean, the drafts were so, so, so much softer um, at that time, but I didn't have any edge of, you know, you know, the value-based drafting or whatever you want to call it. I wasn't able, really able to abstract any ADP value um, over the entire population, but I was just, you know, each draft had more, had a higher win rate, you know, had a, had a higher win equity in that 12-team league. Yeah. And that's where I struggle. Probably one of my leaks is not focusing enough on the allure of having just a unique, very high upside team in the end tournament. I'm very focused kind of, I guess I'm getting teams through, so to speak, mm -hmm. but I am drafting all, you know, I'm drafting early and I'm drafting late. I'm kind of drafting all the way through just because in part, because as it is the content person, I want to stay in touch, like pretty, pretty tethered all the way through. And, and just for entertainment standpoint, just having about <laughs> five slow drafts at a time for uh four straight months, but you do have an interesting barbell strategy where you're going to have half your squads are very high variance, very high upside, but there's a lot that can go wrong. You're going to have some squads that just get killed due to bad luck and your league win rates probably aren't going to be as good because the competition and then half your squads are going to be lower upside in terms of overall, once you get to the tournament, but hopefully you're sneaking in a higher percentage of teams than you would expect in those last 75, just because of the competition edge. There's also some information edge that you draft these first 75 teams, you know, where your exposures lie. If something happens and, you know, I don't know, DeAndre Swift gets boosted from a third round pick to a first round pick. I don't know what it would be. You know, Jamal Williams gets hurt or something. You can kind of apply your DFS mindset here a little bit to, okay, all these teams have third round DeAndre Swift, even though he's technically worth, you know, the sixth overall pick now, is it worth it for me to take that and compete against these other DeAndre Swift teams that are better versions of themselves? So you do get some information as that, you know, can help you make decisions. I know we've had that situation a couple of times with the Tyreek Hill suspension, non-suspension. You know, we had it with Clyde Edwards-Alaire last year with the Damian Williams opt-out. So that's another interesting facet of kind of barbell strategy, you know, doing half very early and half very late. That's it's funny that you bring that up because I think that was like the first um, best ball article that I ever wrote. It was around that exact concept. And it was mostly relating to Tyree kill. Cause he was the biggest, I mean, that was a, that was a, from a, he fell all the way to like the 12th at a certain, at a certain point early in the off season, because we just didn't even know if he was going to, play that yeah. year and then he was going in the second you know once once we knew he wasn't getting suspended so that's a very very dramatic case but i i basically I, I totally agree and so i tried to apply this dfs approach like okay here's where i stand now with with my exposure or whatever and i again screwed up and i wasn't drafting tyreek then but so i laid out that case look i haven't been drafting 12th round tyreek hill I, I'm not going to go out of my way to compete with 12th round Tyreek Hill with a bunch of second round Tyreek Hill teams. So that in turn becomes like a stand that you take against the field, right? Yeah. You're just I, now I, it's not ideal. I'm not happy about, you know, betting against a team that has 12th round Tyreek Hill, but that's just the stand now that I, that I have to take, like, just like as a DFF, like, Oh, 
I'm fading this chalk running back. I know he's the best play, but I just now have to take that stand against him. And that's a bet that I'm making. You know, it's, it's one of my paths to success for the season. And then as far as the drafts themselves, we had a Twitter conversation recently talking about being contrarian within your draft, which sometimes can be difficult because you don't necessarily know how the other 11 people in your draft, like sometimes it takes until round five or six to really know what they're doing. You know, are, are they building a heavy RB team or are they just taking one or two early and it affects how you play? I know I'm probably more pro the four running back strategy, hyper fragile, if you want to call it that. I know we've had some jokes about the name. Um, and, but I think we do agree on regardless. Well, taking a step back, the one thing I found, and I wrote about this in my approach to the running back position is the extreme strategies both did very well last year, not to over rely on one year data, but it is kind of amazing to me that four RB strategy where you drafted RBs early did really well. And teams that were full zero RB teams, no running backs in the first five rounds and drafting a lot of them did very well. Not a ton of people did this. I'm always curious if there's like how much bias there is and the fact that it's more like skilled people doing Mm -hmm. these extreme strategies. It's really hard to tease that out. But I do think these extreme strategies leave you with the most upside because you can really kind of plan around something going right in your draft and just like absolutely optimize that team. And when you apply it now to what your league, your specific league is doing though, you know, that gets amplified. If everyone's drafting the four running backs early because it's hot right now and we see a ton of it, it becomes tougher to get an edge. You know, if I'm and in part with that strategy in particular, the edge in that strategy is you're using those running backs. You're planning to use those running back scores basically all year, you know, your early running back scores. And if yep. your guy gets hurt early, you know, so be it. You lose that league. But that's harder to do if the guy drafting Christian McCaffrey is doing the same thing as the guy drafting <laughs> Nick Chubb because you're basically conceding those points, right? Because if they're building the same thing structurally, you're saying, I'm using Nick Chubb's score every week. He's saying, I'm using McCaffrey's score every week. You're gonna lose that battle in the chub. <laughs> like yep. so it becomes tougher. And I have noticed too, and something you've pointed out, the receivers at the end of the draft aren't as appealing as they were last year. You know, part of the appeal to the four running back strategy is I'm gonna draft 10 receivers, which nobody used to be doing. People used to think that was crazy. Like, and you could get 10 re- you could get 10 receivers that were all starting receivers, like pretty confidently. Uh the math definitely changes when you know those receivers start to become Nico Collins, you know, yeah. uh, some of these rookies. So uh, I, I'm still in between, but I've gotten away from the initial point, which is if you're doing the opposite of your draft, that end of draft uh, value is going to be very different positionally. Uh, if you're in a draft where like six people are doing hyper fragile or you're in a draft where six people are doing zero RB, it's going to be very different. A hundred percent. And so the two points that you made that are like my kind of pillars almost of going in going into every draft is definitely feeling out kind of what the room is sometimes maybe i even get a little lazy because everybody is just drafting so many running backs early it's almost like 95 percent of drafts you know i i don't think i've ever drafted and had like a running back fall to me in the first two rounds where i'm like oh man i got really good value on insert first round running back right it because it just doesn't really happen and so I've been almost pushed into more of these. I typically will say, I think the 
the extremes are every draft should almost be the extreme and it's because of the other point that you make and it's it's you're you're betting on this team as if you're right that's like my my thing about drafting is you have to draft as if you were right and i feel like everyone generally actually drafts as if they were wrong right um going way back to like old season long fantasy it's like people even like how could you ever even have a debate of like should you handcuff your running back right it's like no you should never handcuff your running back because you're just you're assuming you were wrong you're assuming you're wrong on one of your first picks right and so that translates now also to best ball where it's like okay i took you know Christian mccaffrey is like the obvious perfect example but like okay i took you know cam Akers at the end of at, at the at the one two turn now i have to think about this game that i'm playing and i have to assume that i'm right about cam Akers, right so cam Akers is in theory in this you know <laughs> this metaverse that we're now we're now playing in is like so coming close enough in your example to cmc that i'm i'm filling that rb1 points and i'm not really losing points there right cam Akers has the todd Gurley season cam Akers is now you know competing for rb1 right this is the path that i have now laid out for myself by taking cam Akers 11th overall right it's like okay so now think about the rest of the roster and think about what your opponents are doing my opponents are all taking running backs right multiple running backs and they're foregoing this uh, wide receiver upside or tight end upside right i've actually been taking a lot more travis kelsey in the first round which when i first started doing drafts i'm like why is travis kelsey going sixth overall and now this feeling out like feeling out what my opponents are doing i am taking more first round travis kelsey but i bet on this this thing that's right and every step of the way now i'm like okay what are my opponents doing and and what happens because i assume this guy was right so i get the cam maker stealing performance he's he's you know rb1 not saying rb1 but competing for rb1 points every single week now i only have one more running back spot left to fill right because yes. you know we, we we we're only playing we're playing this game where i have two running back spots every week that i have to fill one's locked up with a with an rb1 with cam Akers. do i want to just like match the field every other way from here on right with okay now i take insert like you said nick chubb or joe mixon or whatever and i like all these guys fine and that's where it comes down to people are like well who do you like better like it doesn't really matter who i like better it's about who fits into the structure of this build that i'm now putting together because my goal is to to win first in this tournament now so then i you know second round i'm typically taking stefan diggs deandre hopkins Devonte adams calvin ridley whatever in this type of build because i assume i only have to fill that one more running back spot why would i spend my highest capital on a spot that I can probably piece together later. So that's where I think like listening to say Herzig or, or talking about like the robust RB, that's where I tend to differ from that approach because I'm just thinking in this steps of, okay, I got that one, right. Now I only have to fill this one spot. And I'm like, why would I spend my highest capital on that when I could use that draft capital in the second round or whatever to gain points on my opponents, right. By, by drafting that next running back, you know, well, I'm doing the same thing as everybody else is. I'm not really gaining points there, but I can gain points by taking, you know, if Stefan Diggs becomes the wide receiver one or Devontae Adams is the wide receiver one, I'm gaining points. Now I'm gaining points at, you know, a, a position that my opponents aren't. Yeah, I'm 100% with you in terms of you want to maximize the utility of your early picks. You know, you need to count on using those scores. And if you're using those scores, what's happening? I do think there's some room to take more running backs early and just say, okay, I'm going to 
all my running back points are coming from these running backs. I don't have mm-hmm. to take many. And, you know, now, and I can kind of make up for some of that wide receiver upside by just taking so many in the variance of it. But that's again, where it comes into what the rest of your league is doing. And if they're all doing that, you know, you're all picking from the same wide receivers late. Everyone's trying to draft 10 receivers. It, it kills the supply. And it, that, that's a really important point. You mentioned Kelsey. I found myself too, like, pulling the trigger a little earlier on tight ends than our ranks would indicate because it's just, it's really hard to manufacture that upside, you know, in a structural way. Right. I mean, wide receiver, I just mentioned no matter what, I'm going to get a couple of wide receivers early. You know, I, I'm going to mm-hmm. probably draft a lot and, uh, you know, and you can get some spike weeks from receivers uh, off two catches, right? Like if it goes right yep. tight end, I mean, how often do we get a tight end coming out of nowhere to post a crazy season, right? Like it's hard to replicate that upside. So I do find myself, you know, opting for that tight end as a tiebreaker quite a bit early. And same thing at running back, you know, I'm drafting Tevin Coleman a lot around 18. I don't know. He could be the Jets starting running back and there's a decent bit of upside. He's probably not going to have like a huge season, but what 18th round tight end whose score you're going to be relying on, you know, even half the weeks, let alone all of them. Yeah. I I think there's a huge difference between, well, also just think about it logically, right? There's two positions that you only are posting one score every single week. And at one of those tight end, there's like a proven lack of supply of high upside, right? Somebody is going to jump up, but you also get to draft a second one, right? I'm not leaving drafts with just one with just one tight end. So it's like, okay, I draft Kelsey Kittle or Waller. I can still take a shot, you know. Okay, maybe I'm right about Chris Herndon, <laughs> Lucy with the football with Chris Herndon. You know, maybe I'm finally right about Chris Herndon, right? It was just Adam Gase, and now this is the year the 18th round Chris Herndon works. Or I'm really big on Mo Ali Cox, like these like dart throw tight ends but it's because I don't really need their, I'm never ever relying on their score. And if I happen to get the tight end 20, that becomes the tight end five. Now, now I really have a stranglehold on, on the tight end position because in that scenario, I don't even necessarily need Kittle to be tight end one, right? Because if Chris, mm-hmm. if I hit on Chris Herndon and, and Kittle's just, okay, he's tight end three, tight end four, having a fine, fine season, I'm still gaining points at the position. But I think it's important to distinguish between the onesie positions, quarterback and tight end, and even distinguish between running back where you only need two compared compared to wide receiver and, and flex, which is what I typically consider a, a wide receiver position. Obviously, there's a, a little nuance to that, especially on underdog versus DraftKings, which is another thing that people don't, you know, the scoring PPR versus versus half PPR. But I just think that the these little these little factors of like, no, there's one position and you only need that, you need, you need to post one score right? Or, or running back, you only need to post two scores every single week. So how do you either lock in? I actually do like, you know, I kind of went against it when I was given my example earlier of two early running backs, but I actually do. I, I, have, I have plenty of teams that are like that, right? Cam Akers and Joe Mixon or, or C, CMC. And I don't know, somebody, you know, Antonio Gibson. Yeah. That's probably my, that, that's probably the, the, the elite pairing I think that I would prefer is like, I get, I get the one one and then Gibson falls to me. It's like, I'll just take those two guys. And then I'm, I'm, but, but then I'm still only taking four. Yes. I, I think, think that's huge. And that's kind of what I, I wrote about for attacking 
running back position this year is like, let's take hyper fragile and make it even more fragile, right? Yeah. By like really yeah. counting on using those scores. Then maybe you take Pat and I always joked it's the hyper rojo strategy, <laughs> yeah. but like you can take a third guy that's like in the eighth, ninth round who you like the upside. And then maybe like a fourth guy as a filler in case like things go a little bit bad a few weeks and you don't want to take zeros, but you're not really planning on using that score that much. And see, I like, I actually like in that particular build. So I was talking to yesterday on Twitter, your new coworker, Amico, and he was talking about like some of these late, these late round running backs. And I actually think um, in this circumstance that we're talking about where you're taking like a really fragile, really fragile approach, I prefer given what we need, right? Going back to the payoffs thing, I can bide my time with CMC and Gibson you know, for X amount of weeks to start the year, assuming I get their points, right? Because I have to be right about them anyway. Assuming they're RB1 and RB2, right? In the dream scenario for the first five weeks. And then I draft Latavius, you know, in the 12th or 13th. And then I draft, I got to stop. I got to somehow distance myself from Samaj P. Ryan. But now he's the guy that always jumps to my freaking head whenever we have these conversations a lot about late round running backs, because mm-hmm. that was like the most engaged Twitter thread I've had of the off season is when I brought up that Samaj P. Ryan might be a reasonable late round, late round pick. And so now he always jumps to my head, but you take a Samaj P. Ryan or a whoever your favorite dart throw is at the end. And you're like, look, I'm, I probably, I'm, in theory, I don't even need those guys except for bye weeks but I get to bide my time until one of those, one of those guys opens up. And I think people too often, Again, going back to drafting as if you're right or drafting as if you're wrong, like drafting as if you're wrong in this instance would be taking CMC, Gibson, and then taking like James White and Naheem Hines. It's like, well, you drafted those guys. I understand the premise. You're trying to fill in weeks, you know, get those quote unquote Peter Overs at usable weeks, but like you don't need them because if, if you drafted as if you were right, you have two RB1s that you're filling in those points. Now use those those shots to get a payoff to, to find that payoff that gives you another RB one, right. When it matters later in the season. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty much aligned. I do want to know on that Peter Overset quote, that's Peter Overset. I'm pretty sure directly mocking myself. So <laughs> it's Peter Overset from Mike Leone unusable weeks. Um, yeah, no, I, th- I think, and it's interesting to think through these things and it's almost like, as people start accepting the extreme a little bit more, you almost want to go even a little bit mm-hmm. more extreme yep. uh, because people aren't willing to do that because again, they get scared. They're not playing that things go right. I do think like if there's blanket rules, it's like, and we, I think we'll agree on this is if you're drafting running backs early, don't draft a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yep. And if you don't have really good receivers, this kind of goes hand in hand. Don't draft only seven of them. Like I, I, I've seen in the past few weeks, some like industry people's drafts with seven weak receivers. And I'm just like, like these teams are dead. You know, they're, yeah. they're, just, they're just dead on arrival. So and that's why I believe, sorry to cut you off, but that's why I believe in some of these, you know, like extreme strategies like you, you post because yes, maybe, you know, maybe we'll get into win rate stuff a little bit. Maybe even my win rate is, is not as high, right? But I see all my opponents' teams, and and even the sharp, like you said, I see smart people from within the industry posting, you know, two quarterback, seven running back, seven wide receiver, and it's like there's just no, you just have no paths to winning 
any of these tournaments. And so I think there's just a lot of dead, a lot of dead teams out there. And so I'm not, I'm not tying myself to any one of these extreme approaches, right? I have zero RB teams. I have, I have three RB teams. I have the three RB know. team. I love it. Oh, I love the three RB team. That's when yeah. you draft them early. Cause I did yeah. my, a couple of my teams that did really well last year was like Kamara, Aaron Jones, Jonathan Taylor. You know, I've got one, one of those cooking right now where it's like, three and done like they could technically you could use all their scores in the same week right because you could fill the flags yep. they really go off um and you know and it set i i'm this one i'm working on eric i'm excited to get to the 11 wide receiver i'm i'm excited for it to happen i just took the first 11 wide receiver team that i've ever drafted in my life <laughs> and i i can't remember who it was but it was it was funny because i was listening to your your um conversation with with Jack and you brought up like Miles Sanders is starting to fall. And it was, I don't really have very much Miles Sanders just because of the structure of the way that I'm, that I'm drafting and where his ADP previously was. And now I, I drafted two, I planned to go, I think it was like Dalvin and again, Gibson. I'm really high on Gibson this year. Um, I think it was those two. And then I go wide receiver in the third, like you would expect. And then Miles Sanders falls all the way to, to the fourth. And I'm sitting there and I, you know, I'm like, I haven't, I haven't built a team like this yet. And so I took Miles Sanders and I have, you know, Dalvin Gibson and Miles Sanders. And it's like, all right, you're my three, you're my three guys. And now I'm going to take 11, you know, and it, what it also allows you to do then is be really flexible. And that's another key thing I'm trying to do in drafts, right. Is just be, be flexible throughout the draft. I don't have a plan of zero RB coming in, or I don't have a, I don't even have a plan of people say, I, I have to get an elite quarterback. Like that's typically my preference. Um, but, but I'm not going to be tied to that. Right. And so just as the drafts playing out, I didn't plan to take three running backs in the first four rounds, but now this allowed me to, I know I'm going to have, you know, 11, 10 or 11 wide receivers. So that allows me flexibility in what I'm doing at quarterback at tight end and everything. And there's this trickle down effect that I think is really important to, to factor in while you're drafting. Yeah. Late, late four miles Sanders. If I, if I'm Deandre Swift was, you know, it's in some way comparable to miles Sanders one, like a falling Deandre Swift was my three running back team, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. You talk about the flexibility and I do have some full zero RB teams, right? I, like those, I actually will go mm -hmm. seven receivers, seven running backs, but like my, my seven receivers are like <laughs> insane, right? Like, yep. like I'm counting on those scores again. Um, but I found myself like if I'm really trying to feel out the room, like I almost want one running back early to like keep my flexibility, right? I can, yep. I, I, I can do end up with a team like you said, like a really hyper fragile early running back heavy approach, or if like everyone's doing hyper fragile, I can take my one running back early and do. I don't. This is what Taylor wants us to call the modified zero RB is the anchor RB. Is that does mm -hmm. that sit better with you, Eric, than modified it's zero RB? It def it definitely does. Um, I I can't. I'm not allowed to speak of. I think I'm like contractually not allowed to speak about modified zero RB anymore <laughs> to not get in trouble. But um, I've heard some good ones. Anchor our anchor RB is always what I end up saying. I think I probably heard it from you. You actually, uh, Rummy call, uh, called it workhorse RB, and then I've heard hero hero RB. So like zero Ooh, RB and, and hero RB. I, I like, like hero. I kind of like hero. I do like that. All right, let's talk a little bit about upside. You've mentioned we have two things we do agree on for sure an upside. It's the 49ers, our Niners, and it's Antonio <laughs> Gibson. You've mentioned Gibson a couple of times already. Why don't you lay out the upside case 
for Gibson, who I have to admit, I don't have as much as I want, but God, when you can get Gibson late too with like Dalvin or CMC, it is, it's pure gold. It, it, it really is. And, and the other thing that I like about Gibson, which will, you know, get to the actual upside cases, I believe he has the upside to catapult himself into like, say, you know, a top five running back, which there just aren't outside of like a full blown injury, right? The CMC goes down and Mike Davis catapults himself up or, or Zeke goes down. There aren't many of those early round guys that just through like sheer role growth can catapult themselves up there. So he's this key piece. And wh why I, like you mentioned, I actually don't have a lot of like true full on zero RB teams because I take guys like him, whether I'm taking a running back in the first round or I'm taking a guy like Gibson that can catapult himself up um, into the top tier of running backs to allow for that exactly, exactly what you said, that, that flexibility. So Antonio Gibson is like the guy, right? Everybody was just like, going nuts over last last offseason as this incoming rookie running back and with real no really no competition in that backfield which we saw <laughs> didn't really turn out to be true but um just the skill set that we know is perfect for fantasy right he was actually a college wide receiver blah 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 you can go i'm sure evan has sound bites about you know his much better football takes than i would give about antonio gibson but the, the crazy thing that we saw with him last year is that the one thing that we really weren't sure about if he would be in the NFL, he proved to be. And they gave him this early down running back role and he was really good. And so, you know, we had the, maybe you had concerns of this converted college wide receiver is not going to be the superstar running back. We know he can play receiver. That's what he played in college. Like he's good at that. That was the one thing we didn't question. And that's in turn, the one thing they didn't give him as, as a part of his, as a part of his role, which is really bizarre, but whatever. So he didn't get receiving production and we proved that he's an awesome early down running back. And we know he has the skill set to be an awesome, you know, third down, third down back and re and receiving back. He could even split out wide for all that we know. And so when you have this guy that is just such a rock solid, you know, kind of uh, a pick rock solid play at given the, the, the current role that he has, like, even if his role doesn't grow, he can pay, he can be a, a perfectly good, um pick in the you know second or third round especially ryan fitzpatrick is in town right we know that they're going to be in probably a lot of positive game scripts blah 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 there's a lot of really great things to like about antonio gibson but the one thing that catapults him into like elite elite fantasy back is to do the thing he's best at and that's catch passes and so when you're trying to lay out upside cases sometimes we convince ourselves on things that really aren't very likely or maybe they're not even possible and they're certainly not simple he has this, I've never seen a simpler path. It's like a guy is incredible wide receiver or guy's incredible pass catcher. All he needs to do is catch some passes. It's like, what, what more do you want to bet on? Yeah. He caught 36 passes last year in a two down role, you know, while missing a couple of games and like taking a little bit while he gets started. And while JD McKissick caught 80 passes, <laughs> so like, like Gibson could catch 80 passes with the two down role we saw. And if he does that, it's top five pick. Like it's, mm -hmm. as you said, it's that simple. Then the, the R Niners, I wanted to write an article on the Niners, but honestly it would have just been stringing together your tweets on the Niners, <laughs> which is for me, like I start at the absurd quarterback efficiency they've got and not a bad quarterback play. Like Jimmy Garoppolo and Nick Mullins are two of the highest yards per attempt quarterbacks the last three seasons in aggregate. And they haven't played well by kind of like if you look at PFF or just general consensus. So now they take a quarterback third overall and it's like, well, 
what <laughs> what if he's actually good and we've already got this so this quarterback we might see quarterback efficiency that like we just have not seen even if they don't throw the ball a whole ton they already have absurd running back efficiency like on the Baltimore Ravens level without a rushing quarterback now we've got a rushing quarterback so the efficiency of this offense could be insane and if that's the case even if they're not throwing a whole ton the they're going to put up so many points and I do think too they might end up throwing not as few attempts as people think, because I think if Lance is good, like that's going to offset his rushing, taking away from the quarterback attempts, but they're also going to call plays more aggressively. So it's like this team could just score a ton of points. And those are the situations I, I want to bet on. Right. And like, we can debate about like, I don't know what's a, what's a mediocre offense, right? The Eagles, right. Are they the 13th best offense or the 20th. I I really don't know, but I feel pretty darn positive. They're not going to lead the league in scoring, right? The 49ers, I I, I have not heard a person. So I, I like to do sanity checks because sometimes I get a little too, too galaxy brain, right? So I'm looking in on the 49ers and I'm like looking around the industry and I haven't heard a single person that like questions, are they going to be efficient? Like you said, no matter who's at quarterback, right? No matter who, even when guys go down last year, Debo got hurt. Kittle got hurt. It didn't matter. They're still scoring points with Nick Mullins throwing to Kendrick Bourne, right? Like the offense is just structured in such a way that they're just like almost always going to be efficient. And now you have worlds colliding. Like the the stars are absolutely aligning for this, for this offense in terms of, in terms of upside and probably even floor. And I think that's what people don't, don't factor in enough. They're really worried about what could go wrong right? With this quarterback from the FCS that hasn't thrown a lot of passes and, and, oh, there's so there's target competition. And I get that, but if they're scoring, right, at least like what 24 points a week, right? I think that they're, they're, they're going to compete for like most, the highest scoring team in, in the league. But even if they're just like in the top 10, that's, that's supporting most, most of these guys. And you don't have to pick when to start them. You know, and you don't have to draft every single one of them on your teams. Like I'm not saying draft five 49ers on every single best ball team that you're that you're drafting, but like avoiding people fall into the trap of, oh, I don't think Trey Lance is gonna throw a lot. And in turn, I don't know if Brandon Ayuk is the wide receiver one or uh or, or Waller's projection looks better than Kittle or you know, Debo. I don't know about him and he can't stay healthy. And so they just avoid these guys. And I'm trying to do the opposite where like I don't really know which 49er is gonna pop. But I, I feel overwhelmingly confident that they're all, you know, extreme upside cases. And and I will say, Lance, I'm taking a pretty firm a firm stand on. I shouldn't say that I don't, you know, I'm not like taking a stand on any of these guys. I am kind of just like spreading out exposure amongst Kittle, Debo, Ayuk, and even the running backs. But Lance would be the one guy that like, you know, I mean, he has borderline yeah. QB, borderline the QB one ceiling. Um, I mean, RG three did it in this exact same situation, throwing to like. Fred Davis. So like, I feel like Trey, I feel like Trey Lance, you know, has that elite level upside. So that would be like the one stand I'm taking on the 49ers, but it's just like people fall into kind of the same thing with, are you, you know, drafting if you're right or drafting if you're wrong, they, they fall in love with what they see wrong with situations and don't evaluate like, okay, well, what, what if this hits, what if this all comes together? Like you said, right. What if Trey Lance is good? 
I mean, wheels freaking wheels freaking up, dude. Like they're gonna score so many points if he's if he's good. And so, like, I, maybe that doesn't happen, but I don't really care because I'm just trying to, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to hit on something that gives me the upside to win. Yeah, one of the things too with the you know projectable volume conversation, these offenses that are really efficient and really good as you said, like they have a fl- higher floor than people think where if they're scoring points, Kittle, Ayuk, and Debo are going to be fine, right? They're going to mm-hmm. be okay. But then if one of them gets hurt, you know, the <laughs> other two, you know, you talk about upside to beat your ADP. If the market has assumed, you know, in 19% target share for Debo Samuel, because they're worried about Ayuk and Ayuk goes down and then Debo starts seeing 25% target share and an offense that's still pretty efficient, very efficient. Like that's, I mean, he's got top four round upside. Uh, I, so, yeah, I mean, that's the same thing with the Bengals. I really like their three wide receivers. They're like all gradually dropping. You know, you can get Chase Higgins, Boyd at pretty nice prices. Yep. And even honestly, Dallas, as as, as expensive as C.D. Lamb and Amari Cooper are, I still like them. And I sure as hell still like Michael Gallup <laughs> in, you know, the ninth round or whatever. But I think those are the situations that I bet on more frequently where, you know, if you're wrong about, about the offense, right? Like uh, I like the 49ers, we like the Bengals and the Cowboys. I don't really see past where you're, you're too wrong on those offenses, but if you're wrong about the offense, it didn't matter anyway, you were going to lose with, yeah with, you know, what, whatever you pick, but the upside to, to your point, like just through exceeding expectations as an offense, right? What if the Bengals are a top five offense? They're going to support all those guys anyway. And then one of them goes down because you kind of talked about applying the DFS brain, right? Almost every week in NFL DFS, are we talking about so-and-so's injured? So -so so-and-so's, you know, uh, a value based on, you know, his projected target share or whatever, right? So-and-so was a wide receiver two, and now he's a wide receiver one. If that happens in any of these situations, you have a third, fourth, seventh, eighth round pick that jumps up four or five rounds, you know, in, in value. And the other thing is we don't know, maybe what if, what if CD lamb is the alpha in the best passing offense in the NFL, right? What if Jamar Chase is? what if T Higgins is, what if Debo is, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know, but it kind of goes back to the, the projecting volume, you know, the uncertainty around projecting volume. We really have, we really have no idea because we've never even really seen these teams over a big enough sample or any sample when it, as it pertains to the Bengals and the 49ers. Yeah. And one thing I try to do is give my base volume case when we're working on our rankings, but then also give an upside case, Mm -hmm. like like how good is this player? What could he earn in the perfect scenario? And then kind of trying to marry the two and you know more often than not it's the guys that have those gaps that end up being values in drafts because the market is is so focused on the base case um there's it's obviously a sliding scale if the market was too focused on the upside case which i think happened with like mccall hardman last season for example (laughs) you know and i like him this year a few rounds later but it's it's a sliding scale it's just we know what side the market tends to overvalue Last thing I want to talk to you about, I mentioned it earlier, a little bit of leak in my game, I think might be focusing too much on, you know, getting teams through and not necessarily my team. Once I get through, if I'm playing in one of these best ball tournaments, 
part of my brain is just like, well, it's three uncorrelated tournaments. Like things get weird. You know, Herzig won last year is the only Alvin Kamara team on a six <laughs> touchdown week. Like, like I'm trying not to overthink it, but I have seen some sharp people, including yourself, Peter Oversets mentioned it to me on discord, looking at the schedules a little bit. You know, the Niners have an amazing schedule. We didn't talk about that. They have an absurd schedule this year, but in the playoff weeks, they have a good schedule. There's a few other teams that have a good schedule or they play each other that even if, the weeks are uncorrelated from week 15 to week 16. You know, you're, if you're improving your odds of winning any one of those weeks, you're improving your odds of winning the whole thing. So how do you feel about structuring teams for those playoff weeks specifically, even if it might come at, you know, a small hindrance to your league win rate? Yeah, I definitely am more on the side of, you know, not caring about league win rate is not the right way, way to put it, but it's, it's, you know, not my, my priority. And I actually think there's a big difference between these contests this year and when Herzig won won last year. Um, the field size is massive. You know, we're talking about again putting applying the DFS perspective. We're talking about a millionaire maker, right? Twenty or twenty five bucks, one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand entries. And like you said, yes, it's it's multiple uncorrelated tournaments, but there's what thirteen thousand leagues? Is that my my math or whatever? Something like that. There's thirteen thousand different leagues, and then you got to win each each week thereafter. So you, I I do think it's fairly different than than last year, and why I'm not putting too much emphasis on like you know win rates from last year, but I am definitely looking at the playoff, definitely the playoff schedule, and we do have to mention. I mean. The 49ers don't just have an easy schedule and they don't just have a they don't just have a good playoff schedule. They have the easiest schedule I've ever seen in my entire life. They play every bad pick a bad team. They play them this year and they play the worst team in the championship round. And it's like, I mean, what, what more can you dream of, you know? So anyway, I am looking at those those weeks but not, you know, it, people people get frustrated when you talk about these kinds of things. Like you have to be aware that it's a really minor little edge, right? Probably less than a percent on each team that you're you're gaining an expected value, but these little mini little mini correlations can 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 really matter once you get there, right? And so I'm trying to get you know as many shots on goal and then ratchet up my my edge over those other teams if I if I happen to get there. And so I'm not doing it at the expense of value, right? I'm if I draft whatever, if I draft Kelsey in the first, I'm not taking Jamar Chase in the second because they correlate in the in the week 17. But it's like it's a coin flip, right? If I get to the fifth or sixth or whatever, or especially if like Tyler Boyd falls, you know, those are the best examples. It's like I'm maximizing value on each pick along the way. And I'm also adding in, you know, that hint, I'm turning that correlation lever just a smidge to give me an extra little added element of, of upside then. And then I am, you know, targeting some of these offenses like the 49ers. I'm really bullish on the Colts, which I probably did, would not have said necessarily before. Um, you know, I kind of started this whole best ball drafting process, but I think they have a, they have a nice schedule overall. The and they're really cheap and they have an awesome playoff schedule. So I'm factoring in those things like just enough to where I think it gives me a little bit of an edge, but like I'm people, people obsess over it. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going overboard and like ruining the value of my draft, but I am, you know, mixing those things in. Yeah. It probably makes sense for me to like have a schedule grid of like who lines up just so, as you said, when I get into these coin flip situations, I'm 
picking the correlated side of the coin flip because it's a yep. coin flip anyways. The Colts point too, like they're a team that, you know, they have a good a head coach who's had a lot of success offensively. Like, you know, who like they could be good and their prices are so low. My highest two exposure players right now are Trey Lance and Paris Campbell. So that's that's worked out a little bit for me. Uh, looks they, like my teams. Yeah, looks like my the, teams. The um the Niners playoff schedule that you alluded to is Atlanta, Tennessee, and Houston, which is just <laughs> uh it's two teams with good offenses and bad defenses, perfect shootouts, and then one team that you'll know, score 40 points on regardless of what the offense does. Yeah. So uh all right, this has been great, Eric. Thanks so much for joining me. Tell the people where they can find you. I know you're working on basically a little bit of everything. You're doing this best ball podcast. I think you said you talked baseball this morning. You got basketball to talk this afternoon. So tell the people where, where they can find you and all your sports coverage. Yep. All my work is at, is at Roto grinders, rotogrinders.com. And you can find me on Twitter, just at my name at, at Eric Bimefloor. And yeah, for the time being, I'm kind of covering all the different sports and I'm slowly moving uh, more of my attention into NFL and, and best ball. Um, mostly because you know, just to, to like give a shout out to you guys, I think there's such a huge edge in all of this right now. Like I kind of talked to uh, Jordan Cooper blender, who I do a podcast about that. I kind of feel like best ball is like DFS from like five years ago right now. Like the conversation we're having today or, or some of the things that when you talk strategy with people, right? Like you mentioned, you saw a smart person from within the industry post a team that you were like, Oh my God, this is dead. You know, like, why would you post this on Twitter? And I, but I think that's where we are in this, in this space right now. So I'm trying to, to put more attention onto it and hopefully have the ECR team put less attention onto it to maintain <laughs> the edge for, for everybody. But you know, you guys are obviously doing a good job. So I was, I was excited to come and, and talk with somebody else who feels, you know, passionately about some of the same things that I do in this space. Yeah. really appreciate that. And definitely follow Eric on Twitter. Uh, you're going to get a lot of good insight and it's, it's going to challenge you to think differently, which is you know, the point of this podcast, finding the edge, and you're not going to find an edge if you're not thinking a little bit differently than the market. So thanks again, Eric, all the listeners out there, please make sure to review, subscribe, you know, do all those things to help us keep the podcast going. And I will be back with an episode either later this week or next week with Anthony Amico talking startup dynasty tips. Thanks for tuning in, everybody.